All right, guys, we, uh, <clears throat> the last time I spoke, we were in Luke chapter 16. I just want to recap on one of the verses that we talked about. We talked about the first uh, parable in that, uh, in that, uh, in chapter 16 was the parable of the um, unjust or the dishonest steward or the merchant, uh, and his master found him to be dishonest. And when Jesus finished that, he commended the guy um, because of, not because of his dishonesty, but because of his cleverness, um, his inventiveness, uh, you know, that he was creative in, um, um, in, in, in ideas that would help him. And he tells us to use our wealth uh, so that when we enter into our eternal destiny, that there will be those that will welcome us as, as we come in as well. And then Jesus finished by saying this. He says, the Pharisees who loved money heard all of this, and they were sneering at Jesus. I mean, just, I, mean, I don't know if you can just put yourself there, but can you imagine men and women? I mean, Jesus, so compassionate, so kind, so loving, so caring, and there are those religious leaders that are actually sneering at Jesus. He says, um, and Jesus goes on to say, you're the ones that justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your heart. What is highly valued among men is detestable at God's sight. And we're going to read a, a little passage of Scripture right here, um, uh, through, I think through verse 31. And if you just look at it in bits and pieces, kind of like little sound bites, it's like, it seems like Luke is all over the place. But keep in mind that the Scripture, all Scripture, is um, uh, God-inspired. It's God-breathed, God-inspired, anointed, and directed by God's Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, and, and when we read this, I mean, some of you are going to find, you know, that you too have struggled with some of these statements that he's made or some of these, uh, some of these verses, just, just like, you know, it just seems like Luke is all over the place. But we'll read through it, we'll come back and try to take it apart and try to make some sense out of it. He goes on to say that the law and the prophets, and that's simply just talking about the Old Testament law, uh, the five uh, first books of the Bible called the Torah, um, is called the law and the prophets. Talk about the, the major and the minor prophets. That'd be Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, uh, some of the minor prophets, Jonah, um, Haggai, Habakkuk, uh, Nahum. You know, a, a lot of these, you know, just are kind of grouped in that. The law, the first five books, the prophets, and some of your translations might have the writings. The writings would include the Psalms of Proverbs, uh, Song of Solomon. Uh, the writings would also include First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Um, you know, books like that. In essence, what he's saying: all of the Old Testament, uh, the Law and the Prophets. Basically, he was saying the Word of God that they had at that time. Uh, the Law and the Prophets were proclaimed until John. And since that time, the good news of the kingdom is uh, being preached. Uh, everyone is forcing his way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for one, for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone, this is one of those verses right here. It's just like, it's almost like an afterthought. You know, John's, you know, making a point about the law and the prophets. And then he goes on to say, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then he just jumps into this parable. And he says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple, fine linen. I mean, by the way, purple was one of those difficult colors to get. Uh, it was only for the wealthy. It was, a, it was not a, a common color. So it's a, uh, even today, it's, uh, 
It designates royalty. But there was a rich man that was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was a beggar named Lazarus, uh, uh, who was covered with sores and longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. He didn't even want to sit at the table. He just wanted the crumbs. And it says that even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, just notice that contrast there. I mean, you've got this super wealthy guy that, I mean, fares sumptuously, eats anything that he wants every day of his life, dressed in royal uh, uh, purple and fine linen, and he's looking at this uh, poor man out there just begging for crumbs. Um, it says, and even the dogs came to, to lick his sores. And, you know, the uh, Jews considered Gentiles as dogs. So you can see how, how low, um, you know, this, this uh, you know, uh, the, the, or you can see the contrast, the great contrast between this rich man and this poor man. He says, then a time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, uh, where he was tormented, he looked up and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham. What's that indicate? It indicates to me that he was a Jew, that, you know, that he was, had that Jewish heritage. And he says, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you, there's a great chasm that has been fixed so that those who would want to go from here to you cannot. Why would they want to go? Why would anyone in heaven want to go to hell? I mean, they, they might see loved ones. They might see someone there that they feel like they could go in comfort. You know, uh, he's saying that there is a, there's a, a great barrier there that pre would prevent um, those that would want to come over from here to go to you that cannot, nor can anyone cross from there to us. And he answered, now notice this. You've got to admire this guy. I mean, he's got a plan B. You know, if I can't get a drop of water from my tongue, then he says, you know, all of a sudden he becomes an evangelist. He says, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them that they will, uh, so that they will not come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Now notice this. We started out talking about Moses and the prophets. We talk, start, started off about talking about the law and the prophets. And we're ending up talking about the law and the prophets. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. All right? I know there's a lot in there. Let's break it down. First thing I want to point out, just three points that I want to make this morning. And, you know, maybe God's speaking something to you differently, but um, let me just tell you what I got out of it. This is what I felt like the Holy Spirit was showing me. What the Pharisees, number one, what the Pharisees loved. And we can look at the scripture. We already know from the, this passage alone that the Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. So number one, the Pharisees loved money. In John chapter 12, it says the Pharisees would not confess their faith uh, for fear that they would be put out of the synagogues for they loved the praise of men more than the praise that came from God. Matthew chapter 6, 
He says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. That's talking about the Pharisees. For they love, this is one of, another one of the things that they love. They love to, st- to pray standing in the synagogue on the street corners and to be seen by men. And then Jesus goes on to say, what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. So in essence, what the Pharisees loved is that they loved money, which is fortune, and they loved to be esteemed in the eyes of men. They loved fame. They wanted to be recognized. They wanted to be seen as uh, someone that's super religious. So they loved fame and fortune. But let's contrast that to what God loves. God says in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, I love those that love me, and those that seek me uh, will find me. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 8, it says, I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. In John 3, 16, we all know this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So does that mean that God just loves us? What does that mean? Does that mean that God just loves us? How about the sinners? How about those rapists and murderers out there? Does God love them? Does God love drunkards? Does God love prostitutes? Does God love drug addicts or alcoholics? Does God love them? Does he love you more than he loves them? He does not. How do we know that? Well, the scripture says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, that means before you were a believer, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The second point that I want to bring out is that the word of God, the importance of the word of God. He says the law and the prophets were, were proclaimed until John, and since that time the good news of the kingdom is being preached. For everyone is forcing, him, uh, forcing his way into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Now, Matthew says, just kind of taking up on the same verse, he says from the days of John the Baptist, until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. Now, what does that mean? The violent take the kingdom of God by force? What does that mean? Uh, you know, I mean, I can't tell you how many sermons, different types of sermons that I've heard on this. It's like you've got to be radical in your faith. You've got to make people believe. You guys remember one of those... Um, I, it was. I, it might have been the uh, the not the Ten Commandments, but the greatest story ever told. I think it was the greatest story. It shows John out baptizing, and uh, when John is baptizing, it's he's like holding people under the water, you know, just like you know, I'm going to make you stay down there until you just come up for air, and and you're going to confess Jesus is Lord. I'm going to hold you down that long, and it's not like that. It's not like the Crusades where we force people into into believing. It's not like the Taliban or the ISIS right now that is just marching, that forcing Christians to deny their faith and take up faith, take, uh, to have faith in Islam or Allah. You know, it's not like that at all. And so he's saying that the, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. And what that means is that the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Every book of the Old Testament has some type of reference to Jesus or to his kingdom or to his kingdom coming. And, um, you know, 
they make a reference to a Messiah coming and what, the, what it would look like and what he would look like, signs and wonders that he would do. I mean, you know, talks about where he would be born and, uh, you know, what his kingdom would look like. And uh, so, uh, and we see that. I mean, there, we call those types and shadows. Um, they, more specifically, you know, uh, it speaks about what God's kingdom would, uh, how, how it would come, how a, a Savior or Messiah would come, uh, who would rule the world. And these books of the Old Testament uh, told the Jewish nation that they would have an opportunity to enter into that kingdom, how, uh, how you would enter and who could enter into that kingdom. And it provided them an opportunity so that when Jesus did show up, that they would be without excuse you know, in recognizing him. You know, in the Old Testament, sometimes he's pictured in historical individuals like Isaac and um, Joseph or David. Sometimes he's represented in, in the pattern of God's ordinances, as is in the case in the design and the furnishings of the temple. We see Jesus there. Sometimes he's represented in God's commandments, as in the Sabbath day, that, you know, the Sabbath day was a type and shadow, but now that Jesus has shown up, he is our rest. He is our eternal rest. There's no more work for you or I to do. There's simply believe on him. All the work has been done on Calvary's cross. Sometimes he's depicted prophetically in the writings of the prophets and in the Psalms, and sometimes Jesus is represented by actions of certain individuals through historical events like Boaz when he redeems Ruth. Uh, he's called the Redeemer, the kinship Redeemer. Or David when he invites Mephibosheth to his table. And he says, as long as you live, you will eat at my table. That's the invitation that we have as Gentiles and believers today, is to come and enter and uh, dine with Jesus. But it says the law and the prophets. It says uh, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Now, John is the last of the Old Testament prophets, even though, you know, his, his whole story is revealed in the New Testament. But the law and the prophets were until John. And what that simply means is that they were just saying that someday, someday, a king is going to come, and he's going to establish a kingdom. And you're welcome. God is inviting you to come into that kingdom. But when John came, John's saying, it's not someday. John's saying, that day is now. I am revealing to you. Remember when John said, behold, he's pointing to Jesus, and he says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And he points Jesus out. So the law and the prophets broke until the time of John, but John's not saying someday. He's saying that someday is now, that someday has arrived, and the king of that kingdom is here. Are you guys getting this? All right, all right, hang on. And so, you know, when we think about it, I want to just go back to that statement, you know, that when he says that um, the kingdom of God, let me just read it again. He says that from the days of John the Baptist, remember that was just, you know, that was just a short period of time. He had, um, you know, from Genesis, all of these Old Testament prophecies about a Messiah coming, even in, I think, in Genesis chapter 3, where after the sin of Adam and Eve, and God said to the serpent, he said, that he's going to raise somebody up. So this is the first of the messianic prophecies. He says, you know, there's going to be someone that comes and uh, you will bruise his heel, speaking about what the devil would do to Jesus on the cross. But he said, he, speaking about Jesus, will crush your head. Amen? All right, that's good news for us. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent 
taken by force. What's he talking about? Who were the violent? Well, remember, you know, Jesus was saying he's constantly battling these religious leaders. And, uh, you know, he's saying that, uh, you know, he, he tells them, he says that, you know, uh, you can't put old wine in uh, new wineskins. You've got to put new wine in new wineskins, okay? He says that you can't sew an old cloth on a new garment. You don't want to, or you can't put a new, uh, new cloth on an old garment. You don't want to cut up a new garment to make a patch out of the new for the old garment. And he said, basically what he's saying is that what, what you see right now, what you have is passing away and something new is coming. It, you know, what you're in, speaking of the religious leaders, your former religion and the way that you're doing it is over. It's come to an end. It's kind of like uh, that, uh, the vision that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, I think it was his grandson, had when he saw the writing on the wall. You know, the writing on the wall, many, many tekel you parsons. And, uh, you know, he calls for Daniel, and he says, what's that say? Tell me what it says. It says the king was sitting there, and his, his knees were, he just sees a man's hand just, uh, you know, writing on the wall. He's terrified by this. And uh, the king calls for Daniel. He says, what's it mean? What's it mean? And Daniel said, this is what it means. He says, you, know, you have been weighed, and you've been found wanting, and the kingdom is going to be taken away from you. And that's basically, essentially, what Jesus is saying to the religious leaders. You have been weighed and found wanting. And what you have is going to be taken away from you. Let me give you an example. He says, therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that will produce its fruit. Uh, speaking about Gentiles. I mean, the whole world. Those that would hear the word of God. Not just Gentiles, but anyone that would hear the word of God and believe. Now, notice what Matthew 21, 46 says. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they knew that, they were, that he was talking about them, and they looked for a way to arrest him. And then we see the progression. Watch how this just starts to heat up a little bit. In uh, John chapter 7, verse 19, it says that, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keep the law. This is Jesus speaking to the religious leaders. Why are you trying to kill me? Is they say, you are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? But then we read a little further, and then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up and says, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So when we talk about, when Jesus talks about the violent men are trying to take the kingdom by force, who's he talking about? He's talking to these same men that are in front of him. He's talking to the religious leaders of that day, the Pharisees of that day. Because they said, we don't care what you say that we're going to enter the kingdom our own way, much like Cain. When God spoke to Cain and Abel, he told them a way, a prescribed way to offer the sacrifices. And Cain said, you know what? I'm not going to kill a sheep. I'm not going to shed any blood. I'm bringing some grain, and if that's not good enough for God, then so be it. Well, it wasn't good enough for God because God had a way. He had a prescribed way. And they were rejecting God's truth. But I want to just tell you that God's truth, God's word is never changing. They decided how they were going to get into heaven. And, you know, I mean, it doesn't make any difference. There may be some in here today that say, you know, God, if my way isn't good enough, then so be it. I'm telling you, 
my friends, that is what the Word of God calls us. It calls us to, calls us to repent, to change our way of thinking, that we have to acknowledge that we don't fully understand, that we do not understand. And if we would trust God's Word and believe God's Word, put our hope and our faith in God's Word, then God would reveal greater truth to you. And then all of a sudden, it's almost like an afterthought, and Luke throws this in. He says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. It's like, where in the world is this coming from? What are you thinking about? Well, it's, he just uses this. He's using this as a point uh, to, um, to the, to a point concerning the unchanging, uncompromising quality of God's Word. Because they were real good at this. They were real good at taking certain segments out of God's Word and said, you know, we can, you know, it's kind of like the Sabbath day. They kept adding, adding, adding more, you know, laws and regulations to the Sabbath day. I mean, the, law, the first law of the Sabbath day is, you know, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then they started adding things. What you could do on the Sabbath day. How far you could walk. How, how much of a load you could carry on the Sabbath day. But this was just one of many. And I think that many of you that, you know, are in that situation today think that, you know, that Jesus said this because, you know, that divorce is, is a greater than, you know, all of the other sins. But it's not. It's not. And, and some of you have been carrying that burden around. And I'm telling you today, you need to let that go. You need to let it go because I'm telling you, the Bible says that there's only one unforgivable sin. Jesus said every sin that man commits can be forgiven. The only sin that can't be forgiven was the, the uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I know that some of you have felt guilty and you carry this weight around. You know, that you were married and, and divorced and now you're remarried again. And it's like, you know, guilt and, and just, just baggage is just hanging over you. And God's saying, let it go. Let it go. Leave it at the cross. Let it be buried by the blood of Jesus at the cross of Jesus. Anybody here? All right. All right. Then some of the Pharisees came to him to test him, and they said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? For any, any and every reason. Haven't you read, he replied. Now, this is, what, this is what the Lord is saying. Going back to the very beginning. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let, not, let man not separate. And so what he's saying, what Jesus is saying, you know, what was true in Genesis, what was true in the Old Testament was also true in Jesus' time, and it's also true in our time. The Word of God is not changing. It's still the same. It's still that, that truth is still the same today. In verse 7, he says, and why then, they asked, did Moses command a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of your, your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for, and there are some caveats there, uh, there are some exceptions, except for marital unfaithfulness, marries and, uh, and marries another woman commits adultery. But he's saying here, and he uses this one example. Let me just say this, that during, his, during this time, if you were a woman and you went to the Pharisees and you wanted a divorce, you absolutely would not get it. If you were a poor man and went to the Pharisees and wanted a divorce, you would not 
be granted a divorce. If you're a rich man, a politician, or if you're influential in some way, then, you know, they saw that they could use that to their benefit, and then they would grant you uh, a divorce. And so he says, again, let me just read this scripture. Um, again, I, I just want to reemphasize here, he's using divorce as just one of these tools that the, uh, the uh, Pharisees love to manipulate, and uh, it was like their, their form of control, but it, he's, he's only using it as an example. It's not you know, by any means, the highest on the list of any sins that we might commit. He goes on to say, I tell you that every kind of sin and slander will be forgiven. Every kind of sin. Divorce would fall into that category, right? Every kind of sin? Would that be, is that right? Are you with me? So every kind of sin and slander will be or can be forgiven. All right, then the final point I want to make is... This, so he, he moves into that. You know, he keeps talking about, he started out talking about the law and the prophets and the word of God. And he's saying that the word of God regarding divorce or any of these other things is still true today. It's still the word of God. It hasn't changed. And then he ends up by telling this story. He said, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. He fared sumptuously every day, but there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. Who, uh, who was full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs, crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, the dogs came and licked his sword. This begins, this, this uh, uh, parable begins with the uh, Greek uh, word day. And um, it's, it's, it translates, some of your translations might re uh, read now, and it's connecting everything that he has previously said. It's just like hooking onto the thoughts uh, and the topics that he just spoke before that. Um, he says that uh, this is, a, just something just to point out for your information, this is the only parable uh, where Jesus uses personal names. I couldn't he just said, he starts out saying there was a rich man. Couldn't he just have simply said, uh, and, and there was a poor man. He didn't have to put Lazarus' name in there, but he did. You know, by the way, Lazarus' uh, name, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Eleazar. Uh, you, you might remember that uh, in Genesis 37 that Abraham's servant's name was Eleazar. Uh, Eleazar. It means that God is help. And uh, in Genesis 37, verse 35, all of his sons and his daughters... Uh, oh, no, let's see. I'm in the wrong place. Uh, anyway, uh, Old Testament, uh, uh, Abraham's servant is called Eleazar. It means, say, translates in the Greek as, uh, uh, as Lazarus. But, you know, he could have used, uh, you know, all of the other parables. It says uh, a, fa a, a farmer, a father, a son, a woman lost a coin, a man lost a sheep, a man found a treasure, a merchant found a pair of pearl. You know, it could have been, he could have very easily, you know, said that, which kind of makes me think that maybe it's not just a parable, but, you know, there may be, you know, may, maybe this is really a true story that he's telling. And so he goes on to say that so it was that the beggar died and was carried to Abraham's, uh, the angels carried him to Abraham's bosom. The rich man died also and was buried and in torments in Hades. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off in Lazarus, uh, uh, and Lazarus in his bosom. Uh, so in the, in the Old Testament, up to the time of Christ, there was a place called Sheol. And Sheol was the place of the, uh, the, uh, the holding place, 
And there were actually two compartments in Sheol. One was hell, as we know, this place of torment as described here where the rich man went. And the other place was called Abraham's bosom, and that was like heaven. So in Sheol, up until the time of Christ, uh, when a person died, if you were a non-believer, you went to Hades or into hell in this compartment of Sheol, this holding place. And if you were a believer, you went to heaven or you went to Abraham's bosom. And so this is where the conversation is going on. In this greater place called Sheol, half of it representing hell or this place of torment. And this is where the rich man is talking to Abraham saying, send Lazarus back. Uh, the Bible says, let me just point out a couple of things about Sheol. It says that all of his sons, is speaking about Jacob, and all of his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol uh, to my son mourning. This is Jacob, knowing that he was going into this place. And obviously he was talking about the heaven side of that. It says, uh, Psalm 16, verse 10, this is a messianic parable or uh, proverb, and it says that you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Uh, this is what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. He said, you know, that, uh, he said that David's grave is here. He's buried right over there. And we know that David saw corruption, that his bones, his body saw corruption. But this was a messianic uh, psalm, and he says that you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, and you will not let your Holy One see corruption. It was a messianic psalm about Jesus. And then on the other side, it says, For if God uh, did not spare his angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell or to the compartment or that, but that portion of Sheol called Hades or hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. So, and then he cries and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, uh, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm tormented in this flame. And Abraham said, son, you remember. You remember in your lifetime the good things you received. I want to just point out, too, in this, the rich man didn't go to hell because he was rich, and the poor man didn't go to heaven because he was poor. All right? We're gonna, you, you need to understand that. Sometimes we think, well, you know, the rich man's in hell. He's getting what he deserves. He says, uh, and he talks about the gulf, the gulf that was between them that was fixed so that no one could come, uh, come across. And... Uh, I, mean, just, I just want to just, you know, just wrap this up. You know, he goes on to say, he says, you know, Father Abraham, if you would send Lazarus back to my household, if you just send him back and warn my brothers that they don't come to this place. And uh, he said to them, again, listen, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, the law and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded through one that is risen from the dead. Why did he say that? I mean, why not send somebody else back? You know, you know aren't we always interested when someone has those great stories, they talk about how they died and seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and maybe see glimpses of heaven, some of their loved ones. We're always, you know, intrigued by those kind of stories. And I think in this story right here, the reason that the rich man wanted Abraham to send Lazarus back 
there's an implication there that, that this rich man's brothers knew Lazarus as well. They too saw Lazarus. They knew him by name. They knew that he died. And so if he would go back, it's better than having somebody else that just shows up, a stranger that says, hey, I've been to hell. I went to hell. I saw what hell was like. Yeah, sure you did. But in this case, the implication is that this man's brothers knew Lazarus. They probably treated him the same way. You know, he's just a, you know, filthy old man in rags. Look, the dogs are just licking his sores. I mean, stay away from me. Well, nothing to do with you. The Bible says in Romans 8, 24, for we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen. Now, if Lazarus would have gone by, or if, if Abraham would have permitted Lazarus to go back, and Lazarus is standing before that, that rich man's five brothers and said, look, I want you to know that I've been in hell, and your brother requested that I come and, and tell you about this place of torment so you don't come, you know, and they're like, yeah, man, now we see you, Lazarus. Yeah, now we believe. You know, but that's not the kind, that's not how God's saying, that's not the prescribed way. You know, the prescribed way is this way, that the Bible says, so then faith or salvation comes by hearing. Hearing what? Moses and the prophets and the writings, and the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing the Word of God. For you have been, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that anyone can boast. The law and the prophets were until John. And then he goes on to say, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, he starts out this way and ends this way. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone is risen from the dead. Well, I got to ask you this morning. If today were your last day on this earth, knowing what we know about heaven and hell, where would you wake up? If today were your last day, where would you wake up? Would you wake up in heaven? Why? There's no reason for you to wake up in hell. The Bible says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Does it please him at all? He gets no pleasure out of that. So would you just close your eyes for a moment? If you would just, would you just consider this with me. Are you sure, are you sure that you are going to heaven? And if you're not sure and you want to be sure, I want you to raise your hand. I want to pray a prayer with you. I want you to raise your hand. I want you to raise it up high. Keep it high. Keep them up. I'm, just, I'm holding them. You're going to hold them right there for a second because I want to count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Okay, put your hands down. And nobody's looking around. We're just, we're just speaking, you know, just kind of like Carlos was telling that woman to put her head behind the computer and say these words. That we're not, we're not going to heaven based on our good works. 
We're not going to heaven because we're rich or poor. We're simply going to heaven because, like the Bible says about Abraham, that Abraham believed God, and God counted his belief as righteousness. And so this morning, you're not working your way into heaven. You're not trying to do good deeds to get into heaven. You're simply going to heaven because of what God did through his son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus went to the cross, and he's dying there on the cross, hands stretched out, nails in his hands, nails in his feet, and he looks up to heaven and he says, it is finished, it is over. All the works that mankind can do is over. You cannot work your way into heaven, but what I just did on this cross, dying for you, is your ticket to heaven. And if you want to receive that ticket this morning, you can just simply say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And you can list the sins. Your own sins, all of us are different. I mean, for some it may be drinking, some it may be drugs, some it may be pornography, some it may be lying or stealing or anger, or whatever it may be, you can fill in the blank and you can just simply say, Lord, I know that I am a sinner and I want to receive your son Jesus this morning. Nothing that I could do could get me to heaven. Nothing that I can... Uh, uh, create can get me into heaven. There's no amount of good works that will get me to heaven. Even attending church does not get me to, uh, to heaven. Even reading the Bible does not get me to heaven. But simply putting my faith in your son, Jesus, and that's what I want to do this morning. I believe that Jesus did everything it takes to get me to heaven. And should I die tonight because I've accepted him and I've asked him to come into my life, I've asked him to wash away my sins, and I'm doing that right now. I'm saying, Jesus, come into my life. Wash away my sins. Take away my sin. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of my trespasses. Lord, take away my guilt and my shame. And write my name in the Lamb's book of life. I confess you. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's all say it together. Jesus Christ is Lord. That was pretty weak. Let's try it again. Jesus Christ is Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.